You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm joined by the CEO of the Cooperative Research Center in Honeybee Products, Dr. Liz Barber. Liz's life and career is steeped in agriculture. From a childhood spent among the plantations and rich wilderness of Zimbabwe to a PhD in flower physiology in South Africa, then an early career managing industrial-scale seedling nurseries for forestry companies on both sides of the Indian Ocean. Since arriving in Australia in the early 2000s, Liz has been involved in land management, helped develop patents for sandalwood oil extraction, and worked as the research development officer for the University of Western Australia, assisting other researchers obtaining grants and building industry partnerships of their own. In 2017, Liz helped build the industry and academic connections that underpinned the Honeybee Products CRC, and she has since been managing the collaboration as its CEO. As you'll hear, the centre is working on many aspects of the industry, from identifying new sources of bioactive honey to running clinical trials, optimising crop production, and developing technologies that monitor and protect the health of the bees themselves. Dr. Liz Barber, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the bees. Can you tell us a little bit about the honeybee CRC and your role there? Oh, okay, so I'm the CEO of the Cooperative Research Centre. We're actually the smallest that's ever existed. So we have four programs. The first one is on the resource, and and that's actually become uh, quite a big issue actually, with many with lots of changes, climate change and fires and everything that have actually been happening in recent. And then the second program is actually do with honey chemistry. That's also had, you know, quite a major impact to it because of there was a honey adulteration scandal that happened in 2018. So we've been working a lot on that. Um, and then the third program is actually about bee health um, in trying to detect diseases and, you know, how to maintain bee health and how to, to know that you've got healthy bees. And then the last one was actually about traceability, marketing um, and that sort of side, which is, you know, very much the call of Australia at the moment, because we know we've actually got a really good brand as the Made in Australia. So we're just really trying to preserve that. So those are the four programs. Uh, we've got five years and we're literally halfway through. So we're beginning, things are really coming up, papers getting published now at last. We've got a few provisional patents happening. So it's now at last getting exciting. Well, we'll definitely be getting back to the bees, but I also wanted to delve a little further into your personal history. You grew up in Zimbabwe, surrounded by agriculture. Can you tell us about your early life in Africa? Yeah, it was a highlight, I'd say. It was at that stage, you know, it was, you know, Zimbabwe was God's country, I'd say. You could just about grow anything you ever wanted there. Um, you know, just as kids, you know, we used to go, you know, on these sort of trips um, out into the bush and we used to see you know, the harvesting of the cotton, you know, right way through to the making of the materials. Um, we used to go and see the sugar cane, same thing, all the way through to being made into sugar. Um, we saw coffee, coffee being roasted, fresh coffee, you know, we had our own coffee, tea. It was just, you name it, you know, basically was grown there. It was, of course, the big thing was the tobacco, you know, going into the tobacco barns and smelling it. So it was, it was a wonderful agriculture country you know as well as all you know the wild game and we used to have a boat on Kariba which is one of the dams there and 
you know, for now I'd give my eye teeth for it. But, you know, as a kids, we used to just go and that was a holiday, you know, onto the boat and watch the elephants. <laughs> you, know, just, you know, and it was just so normal. You know, it was like what you did. Anyway, so it was a good beginning. It was, it was really good. And I, could, I think, you know, that's what I sort of, you know, very much tied to the land, very much tied to agriculture. At the end of high school, Liz spent her final year of study in the United States as part of a study abroad program supported by Rotary. But one Colorado winter was enough, and she returned to Africa for her tertiary education, studying at the Natal University in Pietermanitzburg, South Africa. Here, her interest in biology and botany led Liz to take on a PhD studying the carnation flower, with a focus on identifying the processes that lead the flower to wilt and die after they're cut from the plant, and seek out methods for extending their life in vases and on display. I asked Liz about her time in this research program. I was actually very lucky. I was in a laboratory headed by a guy called Van Staden, and he had spent a lot of time in Israel and in California, actually, and came back. And we were a group of 25 postgraduates that were all working on all sorts of things. Mine was the cut flowers, and I was on post-harvest physiology and was a lot about plant hormones. You know, nowadays, when you buy a set of cut flowers, you put a preservative in it, you do it without even thinking, you know. And uh, But that at that stage, was that was the research that we were doing, you know, what um, controlled the whole senescence process. And it was all about this translocation of carbohydrates and setting of seed. And it's a funny thing, it, you know, even though it was cut flowers, it actually set me up for my whole career, actually. All this thing about flowering seed production, partitioning, it's all, it's all the same thing. So it's actually amazing, you know, everything goes in circles. You don't think it is, but everything goes in circles. So after your PhD, you didn't continue with the typical path into postdoctoral research, but instead joined Sapi Forest, one of South Africa's major forestry companies. I want to ask you about that period in industry and what impacts the time away from research had on your publication record and later academic career. Oh, I don't think I've ever been away from research. I think it's just when you go into um, the commercial world, it's just a different emphasis. So Sapi Forest was enormous. I mean, just one nursery alone, what was about, I think it had a capacity of 25 million, but it was sort of continuous production. And we had about four nurseries. So this was massive seedling production and forestry that was going on. It was huge. But then we also got into the clonal propagation of eucalypts, and that that was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. What we were really after was the holy grail of doing somatic embryogenesis, where you, you basically just produce embryos, you call it artificial seed. You know, you'd have a plantation of clonal forestry that actually was produced from artificial seed. So this is a bit like the plant equivalent of Dolly the sheep that was happening around the same time? You're trying to take clones of a plant rather than trying to propagate them through cuttings? Yeah, well, I mean, Dolly the sheep was exactly what the problem was, you know, because Dolly the sheep aged and died very quickly. And that's exactly it. You know, that's exactly the problem when you start doing vegetative propagation. You know, you accelerate the ageing. Um, sometimes it's useful, but sometimes it's actually, you know, it's not what you want at all. And we had a real big problem with that when we actually, when I came here to Western Australia, is that, you know, often the first year of a seedling in the ground is the time that it occupies the site. So the roots occupy the site. And if you don't let that happen, when the first bit of stress comes along, they just die. You know, so we, yeah, we had, we had some really hard lessons along the way, you know, trying to resolve that. Well, let's move with you now to Western Australia, 
I understand you migrated mainly for family reasons, but you began lecturing at Murdoch University and pretty quickly developed links into the Australian forestry industry. I gather the project you just alluded to was the one around blue gum plantation development. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project? They were, they were just starting up the blue gum industry here. And because I knew all the pulping process yields and fibre and everything, you know, it was actually, I was actually in a good place at the right time. But it was interesting that the original blue gum project was, was really well placed. It was really well thought out. You know, we have a problem here in Western Australia where we have a hard pan that's quite close. But what the hard pan does is that it causes waterlogging. So, and in, in the waterlogging, it brings the salt, you know, up to the surface. And so you really need to keep that, stop that waterlogging actually occurring. So when they deforested the lands, you've actually got this problem that if you don't manage the waterlogging, you it becomes saline. So that the forestry and the, and the blue gum trees were, were in, you know, were put in to actually keep that waterlogging under control. And they worked very well. And it was, um, I mean, there was a great success in trying to turn salt water back into freshwater streams and there's some you know there's some really good things that happened so basically it's sort of sort of work in conservation and land management when it first started and then there was a, a an election and the liberal party split forestry from environment so it got split so forest products actually commission actually got formed and that so we went across into the forest products commission but then I've really got involved in seed production, which was just fascinating. So um, you sort of think, oh, seed, you know, it's nothing. Um, but if you think, you know, even I remember in the early days when we first started, just for mine rehabilitation, the amount of seed that is actually collected is enormous. Um, and, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things. That, you know, so we used to have about 200 hectares of seed orchards that we managed. Um, and you know, doing all the breeding programs behind it. So we had a very good tree breeder with us, Trevor Butcher, who did all the breeding. And then we would take that into the seed orchards, design the seed orchards, uh, put them in, manage them, collect the seed, clean it, get, you know, supply it to all the nurseries. So so the nursery that was down there in the management was actually had a production of 40 million. So in one year, they actually did 42 million seedlings which was incredible. The thing, the thing about that is that in, in Western Australia, you have to dispatch literally within one month, two months. It's all you've got. You've got a very small window in which to get that number of seedlings out and planted in the ground. So it's literally you know, like an army, you know, trying to get that all organised and happening. It was, it was really interesting to be involved in. So all this industry engagement work in the Forest Products Commission gave you a lot of experience to draw on for your next role as a research development officer at the University of Western Australia. What advice did you find yourself giving to young researchers as they applied for grants and built collaborations with industry partners? Yeah, well, lots of advice, I suppose. You know, the, the funding landscape in Australia is very structured. It's, it's breaking down a bit now because uh, I guess the government focus is changing, but certainly when I was doing it, you know, there was very definite fund sources of funding. So there was the Australian Research Council, which is if you, you have to be a very serious researcher with a very good um, track record to actually get you know, something at that level. Then there was the medical side of that equivalent to that, which is the NHMRC. And it's sort of the equivalent. Those are the two sort of Rolls Royces that you sort of went, if you got that funding that was highly prestigious. The sort of the, the next, which is more into industry, 
is is more of the um, development corporations, the same with the CRCs, the cooperative research centres. And that's when you really have to start getting partnerships with industry to make it work. So companies here are not used to working with universities at all. It's a very massive divide at the moment between universities and companies. Um, you know, the academic requirements are quite different to what a company wants. You know, in academia, you know, publishing papers, making sure that they're in the right journals, um, you know, doing the teaching. Whereas when you're with a company, it's it's got to be quicker, instantaneous. Sometimes it's it's lighter research. It's not as as blue sky. So it's, it's quite a different kind of research. You know, there's lots of new efforts happening. I mean, the the CRCP, which is the, the CRC project, which is really helping, I think, to heal that divide. I think that's actually, and I think the CRCs, out of all the ones that I've been involved in, I love the CRC program. I think it's brilliant. It's the hardest one to do, but it's the most exciting, I think, because, you know, the whole time you're sort of looking through universities to try and find people who can help your industry that you're representing. And then the same with the industry, trying to educate them about what's going on in the universities. So you spent this whole time between the two, backwards and forwards, sort of informing one or the other. But it's it's really exciting. So in 2017, after 10 years serving as UWA's Research Development Officer, Liz became instrumental to a successful Cooperative Research Centre grant bringing together researchers from WA, South Australia, Tasmania and Queensland, along with government bodies like AgriFutures Australia and industry partners including Capilano Honey, Spring Gully and Manuka Life. Collectively, these organisations aim to study all aspects of bee health and productivity, from honey and medicine to pollinisation services and hive management. With a background in agricultural research and a strong industry network, Liz was a natural fit for the CEO role, and she's been guiding the project since launch. I wanted to delve into the CRC with Liz, and we kicked off the discussion with their recently published analysis quantifying the value of bee pollination in Australia. That's an interesting one. So actually, there's a really interesting economist, John Karazinski, who's just done all the numbers. And honeybee pollination is worth $14 billion to Australia. You know, when the bee arrived, you know, so it's nearly, what, 200 years since the honeybee arrived in Australia now. Um, and when it first arrived, you know, it was for just honey production. But what happened was, is we've, we've, of course, got feral bees. You know, they escaped and they went feral. And whether we like it or not, they basically do that $14 billion worth of pollination just about for free. Um, but the problem with, with agriculture pollination is that it isn't all year round. So if you're going to keep bees alive and healthy, you have to have native flora or some sort of other flora that supports the honeybee through the rest of the year. And um, the biggest time that's the most important is spring. So it's straight after winter, it's whatever flowering actually occurs to build up the numbers of your hives. If you don't have a good flowering after winter, you basically can never catch up. So we one study that we've done, we've been mapping all the floras. And then what we've been doing is we've been doing sort of effects of environment over, and we've done we've also done you know the burn scar. Prescribed burning here has actually been very big for a long time. So since we had the Yarloop fires, it's legislated here in Western Australia that they have to burn 200,000 hectares a year. 
And they're really battling to find 200,000 hectares to actually burn, I think. So it's been really interesting to watch the impact on the flora that that's having because it's actually burning in some places. They're just about burning apiary sites every single year. There's <laughs> just no way it's going to get back onto them. So we basically lose about a third of the, of the nectar every year from the flora, just from fires in Western Australia. So we've been looking at making, you know, apiary sites. And of course, you know, the big the big plant at the moment is the leptospermum, which makes manuka honey. Um, manuka has just this one ingredient that just seems to be special, the active ingredient, which is DHA, which comes into the nectar of the flower. The bee takes it up and actually puts it into the honey. It's a non-enzymatic conversion into MGO, which is the active ingredient, which is the antimicrobial. So at University of Sunshine Coast, Peter Brooks, is, his team has actually been mapping all the leptosperm species and those species that produce the active ingredient, the DHA, and which ones don't, and where they are and where, where all the hotspots are for you know, really producing manuka honey. New Zealand have got one species, which is, you know, Leptosperm scoparium, and it's basically also across in Tasmania and actually is on the mainland as well. We've actually shown that the Leptospermum genus, as it stands now, actually splits into four groupings, massive groupings. They could almost be different genera. And actually, I think the Rolls-Royce of the Leptosperm in the species is the Polygalifolium, uh, which is the one that grows um, in Queensland to New South Wales. It is just a fast-growing, big nectar-producing, high DHA. It's a beautiful, beautiful leptosperm. It's absolutely stunning. Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Manuka honey because it definitely seems to be a product that has dramatically changed the way honey is being viewed in healthcare. I wondered if you could give the audience a sense of what therapeutic value there is in honey and perhaps talk us through the clinical trial that I know the CRC is running. So we, are, we have got a clinical trial. It's really exciting. It's actually after tonsillectomy, straight after that operation, they need something for pain relief. So we've actually got, it's a blind trial. So we're trying Manuka honey, we're trying Mary honey, and then there's, a, there's an artificial honey. You know, really, honey's got three things that we're after. You know, one's the, the prebiotic activity, which is the long carbohydrates that are in the honey. Um, the, one, the other one is the antimicrobial, which we've been talking about with Manuka, the, non, the peroxide, non-peroxide. Naturally, any honey is antimicrobial, and there's just a variation. There's about a hundredfold difference between the best and the worst. And then the other part that honey has, which we haven't really given, we've started giving more attention to, is its antioxidant activity. So the antioxidant activity also goes into anti-inflammatory, and so that also goes with wound healing. So hence why you can imagine we're doing the trial, you know, the tonsillectomies after tonsillectomies. You know, you've got both of those benefits, the, the anti-inflammatory as well as the antimicrobial, you know, as well as the soothing. So, and so that's actually why we're doing it is because of all of those things coming together. Um, so this humble insect has provided us with a myriad of benefits from honey production and agricultural pollination through to new therapies for wound healing. I don't think we can wrap up this discussion without also addressing the elephant in the room, which is the reports that insect populations, including bees, are in decline across the globe. What can you tell us about colony collapse disorder? Yeah, that's a, that's a really bad one. You know, maybe what I should do first is tell you, you know, you keep hearing, oh, there's a, you know, the honeybees are in decline. 
when you actually look at the numbers, there's only three countries where honeybees are really declining. One's, of course, America. The next is Germany. And the other one is Russia. So basically, the, what's been happening with honeybees is that they're moving out of the norm, northern hemisphere and actually moving into the southern hemisphere. But then we've got all these threats. So the first threat and the biggest threat is Vera, which is just this horrible tick. And if you look in terms of the, the proportion of the size of the Varroa mite to the size of the honeybee, it's actually one of the biggest sucking insects to go on any organism. But it's not so much what it does, it's actually, it introduces viruses. So then you get the deformed wing virus and you get some other viruses. So it's a virus that they carry that we're more worried about. And I think that's actually what America's been noticing is that at first they thought they could control the mite. But as it just seems to be degrading the whole population to, to such a degree, they lose just about half their bees every year. But the way they do their pollination events is just huge pantechnicans, you know, moving honeybees from one big agriculture crop to the next. And they get exposed to the neonicotoids. So the neonicotoids, they sort of seem to affect the nervous system and they lose their direction. So colony collapse is multiple of things, and that's why we're sort of trying to work out what's most important. I think, you know, since I've been watching things, the biggest problem that we actually have is we've got this massive increase of honeybees, certainly in the southern hemisphere, and the flora isn't increasing at the same rate. You know, it's like if you have sheep in a field, you make sure you have so many sheep per field for the feed. So we've been doing a lot of modelling to try and work out the proportion of feed to honeybee colony that you actually require. I think we've got to be very careful with this massive increase in beekeepers that we've got in Australia, that we keep it in proportion with the feed that's there. And it's going to have multiple flowering events right the way through the year to keep your honeybees alive. There's one of our PhD students, she's done a really good example where if you starve your bees and, and then you put them back onto feed, they never quite recover. They never quite get to that same performance as they were before. You know, so if you kept other bees, you know, fed them continuously, their vigour is literally twice that of, you know, some hive that you've actually starved. So I think, you know, colony collapse starts with the feeding then it's the diseases, then it's, you know, all the pesticides. So if you, it just builds up and builds up. And builds up. <clears throat> well, we certainly hope the Honeybee CRC continues its work studying and resolving these challenges for bees. Um, speaking of which, now might be a good time to encourage our listeners to connect with the CRC and support your efforts. I understand you're organising a conference in 2021. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it, we, we are trying to bring together all the research that's happened across New Zealand and Australia into one place. Um, it's going to be the end of June, the end of June, beginning of July. So we hope that all this COVID's over by then. You know, this whole risk analysis about it's going to happen. Um, so what we're doing is that there's actually two conferences going on at the same time. One's this total intense research conference. And then just to keep everything a bit light-hearted, we're, we're partnering with BICWIC, which is the Bee Industry Council of Western Australia, and ARBIC. And so there's a beekeeper, you know, down-to-earth beekeeper um, session running as well. So I think the mix of having the science and the industry together in the same conference is actually going to be really good. So we're running three sessions. So two will be research and one will be beekeeper. At the beginning, we're doing some workshops. There's different workshops and specialist things. 
at the end of it, we're doing these industry tours and there'll be a big field day where you can see all the equipment and whatever. So just hopefully that it all works works well and the, the virus lets us all be as we want to be. <laughs> so. Well, looks like we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you one final bee question before I let you go. Most of the global bee industry is based around Apis mellifera, the European honeybee. Is there an economic role for Australia's native bees in either pollination or honey production? Oh, yeah, and it's growing. I mean, there is a role. I mean, I think I think the thing about, you know, Apis mellifera is that you can carry it and you can bring a large number into monoculture. It's very difficult to adapt native bees to you know, large monocultures. And that's, you know, what's the problem? Native bees for us, um, most of them in, in the, the southern part of Australia are all solitary. When you get into northern Australia, you get more tropical, you get sort of small colonies forming and you can encourage them and whatever. But the thing, you know, and I'm sure it'll develop over time, but at this point in time, you know, the Apis mellifera, you know, remember we've been 200 years at it, you know, in terms of managing them in hives and the whole management system. We haven't quite got to that level with any native bee yet. Um, there's another PhD student here, Kit Prendergast, who is a real native whiz, and, you know, we have long conversations about this and we just think that you've got to make sure there's enough flora for everybody. And so that's actually, you know, what we always do, you encourage both native bees. And remember that honeybees are a colony. They have a very high energy requirement that where native bees can survive, honeybees can't. Honeybees need water and they need a high level of nectar and pollen for them to survive they'll they will collapse if they don't have a high level of feed requirement so it's a quite a different energy requirement between the two so i think native bees will always be there in levels always honeybees come in for exceptional amounts of nectar and exceptional amounts of pollen they don't come in where there's just a low level where native bees survive so there's a role for native bees um, there's a role for both of them in different circumstances well, Liz, thank you for that fascinating glimpse into bee research and also your previous history in forestry and agriculture more broadly. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask one final question that I ask all our guests, which is whether you have any book recommendations for the audience. Oh, okay, you've sprung this one on me. I'll tell you the honest truth. You know what I read at the moment? Oh, just one paper after the next. I seem to be reading papers and papers and papers because, you know, at the moment, especially now is that um you know because we're at that point now the papers are coming out and you know whilst it's all happening for us now it takes about a year till you guys see them i think all i'm doing honestly is reading scientific papers and, and reviews and just trying to keep up with everyone well sorry to hear you're not getting time to squeeze in some leisure reading but congratulations on the success of the crc and we're glad to hear there's a flurry of academic publications on the horizon liz barber thanks for joining us on lab notes that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.